Okay, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. Doing this live once a week gives me a good excuse to gather up some of the stuff I see that captures my attention and I think maybe makes an integral point in there somewhere. And so that's what I want to share now is a clip from Anderson Cooper's program that he does every night on CNN, where he is talking to Kerry Cordero, who is a senior fellow at the, at the Center for a New American Security. So it's a think tank in Washington, DC. And they're talking about Trump and the decision around Turkey and Syria and how he made it. And I think it shows a lot uh, about how Trump is misinterpreted by the establishment. So let me play that. It highlights um, how impressionable, how malleable the president is. It's an issue that speaks really to his intellect, to his character, and to whether or not um, he is so impressionable by these outside leaders. And it also speaks to how much he uh, looks to authoritarians or other strongmen type government leaders and how he is unduly influenced by their views in particular. All right, so that's a very common view. I, I have it in a way, you know, I, I, I default to it when I sort of live in liberal Jeff's consciousness. And, you know, it's like, it's obvious the way things are and the way things should happen. I mean, we've been studying this. We have professionals. Uh, there's ways of doing things that make sense. And the only reason to not do them is because you're either stupid or deluded or co-opted or being deceived or you're being dishonest. And that's what every, that's how every worldview explains the others. Because it's so obvious when you're in one that it's the right one. But that misses Trump. It does. I, Trump, the, the, Trump actually does have a policy. It's no more stupid foreign wars or entanglements. Um, the execution is uh, leaves much be, to be desired, but that is the policy. And he sees the world that way. And he sees the world in the same way that a Putin or an Erdogan or a uh, Orban in Hungary see the world, which is at a you know, traditional level at best, in, in the case of Trump, I actually think these other guys have uh, some development on, uh, uh, that he doesn't in, in certain lines. But it's about making your country great. And this idea that America has to be the one who's sort of managing the whole globe, we're kind of over it. Thomas Friedman had a column this morning in the New York Times it was called Trump's Syria Trifecta, a win for Putin, a loss for the Kurds, and lots of uncertainty for our allies. And then the subhead, it's pure genius, exclamation point. And he writes that the job of the president is to balance the understandable desire of Americans to no longer bear every burden and oppose any foe, which is a famous line from Kennedy, to ensure the survival of freedom with the fact 
that U.S. interests and values still require us to remain engaged around the world in a sustainable way. So we want both of those things. And what it shows us is that there is sort of a new emergent, it's been there, but it's now being acted out consciously uh, in the world. And it's it's a, actually a globalization of worldviews where people find that they have more in common, like the conservatives here, might find that they have more in common with Russia than they do with liberals in the coastal cities here. And here's an example of that that I saw that I thought was interesting. It's a t-shirt that they're selling at Trump rallies that says, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And there you have it. So there is a, you know, coherence here among people who are operating at the more traditional, pre-modern, pre-globalist, pre-multicultural worldview. And they're like, let Russia be Russia and let Turkey be Turkey. And this is the new divide in American foreign policy thinking. Friedman said, on one hand, we don't want to be the policeman anymore of everybody. There's a pretty good consensus of that in this country, and Trump's executing on that. But so what's the skillful way to do this? Do we just withdraw and let the forces at work uh, have their day? You know, do we really want to see what happens when people who are at traditional stages of development uh, have it out with each other? We've seen a lot of that in the world. Uh, World War II was sort of the last gasp of it that catapulted us into the postmodern world. But for countries like Russia and Hungary and Turkey and a lot of countries, they're in that realm where they're just, they're, they're, you know, not so sure. So how do we help that process along? You know, Afghanistan's probably going to be next when Trump uh, has uh, his way. Uh, if particularly if he has a second term. And there's an argument that these forces need to fight it out. But I don't think that argument wins the day today uh, because there's a new generation in these countries that they're tuned into the modern world through the internet, basically. And I talk about it often, but I love reading the comments in Reddit from young Muslims uh, who are in the Middle East and, and, and who are really just so weary of these old traditional arguments. So can we sort of manage to sort of hold things together, especially, you know, when you consider that invading Iraq sort of took the lid off in the first place? You know, do we have a, don't we have a responsibility to be extra skillful in the way that we, uh, you know, help things move along. But we can recognize that there's a movement. We can also recognize that after 20 years of being in Afghanistan, that if we left, it would probably devolve into tribal warfare. I mean, I've heard people argue that there might be an island of modernity around Kabul. I don't know. Who knows? Nobody knows. Let me just read a couple more paragraphs from Friedman because I think he makes a good case that I really agree with. He says, most everyone now understands, he says, I certainly do, 
that we don't have the time, patience, energy, or know-how to create democracy in the Middle East. But what we can do and should do is amplify decency wherever we see it in hopes that the islands of decency there might one day connect up and flower into democracy. I think that's beautifully put and a really nice sort of guiding principle, these islands of decency. And then it goes on. For instance, Iraqi Kurdistan and the Syrian Kurdish regions, while they have plenty of corruption and tribalism, are nevertheless islands of decency where women tend to be more empowered, Islam is practiced in more moderate forms, and Western liberal education is promoted in American-style universities. In just walking away from the Syrian Kurds, Trump has weakened their island of decency rather than amplified it. America is better than that, even if our current president is not. Yeah, I wanted to share this letter that Trump wrote to Erdogan, president of Turkey. Dear Mr. President, let's work out a good deal, exclamation point. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, and I will. And then he goes on with, don't let the world down. You can make a great deal. I've talked to the Kurdish general. He's willing to make concessions. Um, And then his final paragraph, history will look upon you favorably if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool, exclamation point. I will call you later. Sincerely, Donald Trump. And that just, <laughs> I got to say, it, it, it gave me pause that somehow he, and he did it with Kim Jong-un too. It's like fire and fury, we're going to bomb him, and then love letters. And it's, it sort of creates this big space between these absurd extremes. And I just wonder, what must it be like? And what must it have been like? to do business with Trump, where he would have this kind of approach. You know, you get a letter, don't be a fool. You can be the greatest in history. And it's effective. I underestimated how effective because it's actually not very effective on me, I don't think. And I don't think it's effective on a lot of people. But it's effective on enough people. And and I actually have a little bit of personal experience with a person that I knew that was um, like this, actually. And with this big, florid, embarrassing kind of compliments. And then these, as he would say, I'll I'll go medieval on you. And then it would be this this threatening and scary. And, um, And I was shocked at how effective this person was with very, very smart people. And um, so, you know, I just wanna note that. And that's a new part of the human repertoire that I thought was over, and it apparently isn't. Okay, so regarding impeachment, I note that as of this morning, and this is October 23rd, Wednesday, the latest polls that they featured on Morning Joe, and I think it's the Quinnipiac poll, has the majority of Americans 
in favor of the impeachment investigation. So whether he's removed from office is another question. And on that question, a plurality is now for removal. So 48% to 46%. And that is uh, a, a significant move in the last week. I, I think about myself. I definitely, and have for a long time, thought that Trump was just not characterologically uh, fit to be the president, president. And I could never really trust him, even though there are many of his impulses that I think need to be brought back online and that modernity and post-modernity got ahead of themselves with globalization and uh, multiculturalism in a way that has left people behind that aren't, turns out, not willing to be left behind. And that the whole thing's, of course, growing and moving. That's the evolutionary view. So it's not like the fight to the death. It's a fight of let's move forward as intelligent, let's grow, you know, as we would a family with children. Let's grow as intelligently as possible and lovingly. And, and so there's something that is clarifying about Trump's blowing up of the overconnected sort of group think, you know, even Obama called the foreign policy establishment the blob. You know, just this this thing, this deep state, it, it, it actually is. And I, I think it's just a, a thought experiment. This helped me because I was like, what deep state? You know, there's a, a new Fox News talking point and deep state my ass. And, you know, I, I had a whole big thing about it. And then I realized that what they're talking about is what I also resented when Obama was president. And that was how the Texas courts would always screw with his legislation. And that in Texas, they, you know, there, there was just sort of a built-in resistance. And that's so there's the deep state. It's like this sort of bureaucratic blob that does need to be shaken up from time to time. And it's, of course, never pretty. So, you know, what we're seeing in this clarification is the part of politics that is not about the dignity of the office. It's not about the Constitution. We realize we used to fight about that. It's not about our alliances. It's not about precedent. It's not about spending, free speech, emoluments, nepotism, sex. It's not even about facts. It's about the, re the exercise of, of red power. And of course, the, 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 the fight is between these two worldviews, uh, post-modernity and traditionalism, with sort of modernity being pulled from the middle. Uh, generally, it's the scientists that go with the postmodern, and it's the business people who go with the, the traditionalists. You know, that is the fight. And that's good to know. You know, is are we going to have more modern globalism are we going to have more multiculturalism? This is how the fighters perceive the fight. Is it we going to have more of that? Or are we going to have more, you know, obedience to God's laws and love of country and heritage and all of that karma that's so rich and juicy? And so which is it going to be? And that leads me to the point of this show, which is integral consciousness. 
which says that it isn't one or the other. It's all of the above. Actually, more fully than even anybody is currently. We want to be both more liberal and more conservative. And I know that sounds like a koan, but that is the integration of the two polarities that we've now really polarized into, which is what happens before there's an integration. Hopefully, we do it with a minimum of pain, but there's no pain-free option. So when I you know, sort of think about that, I think about, so, okay, so we want, a, we want to continue globalizing. We're, we're going to. We can't help ourselves. And, but we want to do it in a way that takes accounting of what is, is a, a sort of, a, I don't know how new it is. It's been around for probably 20 years, but this idea of multiple bottom lines. And, you know, capitalism has always just been about the one bottom line, the financial bottom line. So multiple bottom lines being profits, people, and environment. Those are the sort of the big three. And I love that because it so aligns with integral theory that recognizes that reality arises in first, second, and third person. So, you know, I do what the individual profit and, you know, achievement and all of that good stuff. But I also want to take into account how what I'm doing affects other people. And in the case of capitalism, other cultures, maybe on the other side of the planet. And of course, the environment. And we want to have a real accounting of those things. So that's how globalism moves forward. In multiculturalism, we want to recognize the evolution of consciousness. Basically, that's what green, that's green, what green has to do to move into integral. To see that, that wait a second, this is a moving system and it's moving towards goodness, truth, and beauty. It's as hard as that could be to see by often through the expression of the opposites of those things. But in the meantime, people are at different stages of development. This is the big part of inclusion that post-modernity doesn't get, even though they, of course, talk inclusion. And that is inclusion for everybody who thinks like I do. I don't care what color, creed, or background you have, as long as you're postmodern, then you're in. No, no. It's a multiculturalism that realizes that there are people who are living at stages of development that are objectionable to the postmodern sensibility. And so while recognizing that they are there and they get to be there, they get to be who they are. And they actually, of course, the practice is to love them. It doesn't mean you don't fight them, but you don't get to hate them. And that allows you to be a much more effective fighter, you know, because you're fighting for growth and, and doing it like the way you Fight for your kids' growth. You love them, even though they're nuts. Um, I know that it is uh, tough. And so that, that sort of gets us to the other side of the street. So then how, what's the evolution of traditionalism? Because, you know, as it gets bigger, it also evolves. You know, traditionalists these days are nothing like traditionalists were in the, you know, well, centuries pre previous. Um, so. We want a faith in God 
however we view that. Um, and, and for me, it's emergence, it's the updraft, it's the loving intelligence that sees me and loves me that is ineffable. I don't, you know, it becomes mysterious. But I always love what Carl Jung said I don't believe in God, I know God. So it's actually an um, apprehension of the divine realm that is beyond words and thought. Words and thought can't go there. Words and thought happen within this bigger space. And so, you know, whatever. So we, but th that's where that can go. And we got a long ways to go. And I'm going to play something that also has gotten a lot of uh, attention this week. And, and I got to say, this shocked me. This, this is a, a short video from a, I think it's a county commissioner meeting in Pigeon Ford, Tennessee. I knew these people still were around, but boy, this is a florid example. Here we go. We got a queer running for president. And that's Pete Buttigieg, of course. And you see the crowd's reaction. They love it. And then he explains uh, his view here about race and equality. I'm not the president. The is a white, a white male in this country has very few rights. Okay, says, I'm not for prejudice, but a right male in this country has very few rights. And they're getting took more every day. And they're being took more every day. And then he says how we need to straighten this country out. And, and here's what he says at the end that I think is very telling. Now, you know, your kids and your grandkids is going to pay for what we said. And if we don't, our kids and grandkids are going to have to pay for what we let happen. And then from the crowd arises a big amen. So, you know, that's who we got to love. And so that gets me to the last part, you know, in terms of mapping out this new integration. Oh, actually, no, I, I wanted to actually add this other piece that, um, you know, the religion has to evolve. But one of the ways it can evolve that I think is really interesting is it's not in a sense that it would get more inclusive of other doctrines. It's actually that, well, one of the examples that's current is a movement that's created by a conservative Catholic thinker, commentator, uh, who is, um, his name's Rod Dreher, and he has written a book called The Benedictine Option. And it's a very exciting spiritual development. Uh, and what he's saying is that we conservative Catholics who really do feel that God came in the form of Jesus and that the church has been the bride of Christ ever since, and there's a lineage of that, that can't be negotiated away. And we have commandments from this God and, you know, that we have to take seriously for our immortal souls and that of our children, like this guy said. And so what he's saying is that conservative Catholics need to withdraw from society and create their own communities and their own sort of world spaces. And I, I love that, actually. I think 
provided that they can do that in a way that is um, peaceful, then it's, you know, it, it's sort of appropriately integrated with the rest of the culture, what it would have to be. Um, then that's, then it's an interesting thing. It's like, you know, you're putting up a membrane around your world space that people are welcome to. And it coexists in a larger context with a pluralistic culture at large. And uh, I actually expect to see more of that. I think that's a, actually a, a, a evolutionary move forward. And I expect to see more of that as more and more people see the limits of secular materialism and the sort of deep anxiety and, and, and nihilism that is always lurking around the edges of it. And yet they can't, these people can't go back to mythic religion. They can't. They're, you can't uncook the egg, but they can go forward into a transmythic. And, and then, then this is the other thing that the traditionalists have to do, sort of the, the patriotism piece of it, is that that also needs to be seen in a transmythic way. So we want to transcend that myth of America as the shining city on a hill. That was Reagan's big line. And of course, every culture, Turkey, you know, every culture has their, you know, beautiful mythic past, their story of when they were a shining city on the hill. That's an important thing to have. We want to transcend that, but we also want to include it as we transcend it into another, you know, bigger space. So we do that by recognizing the other side of the ledger, you know, the uh, other dimensions of reality with slavery and the genocide of the Native Americans and the many stupid wars, some smart wars, you know, we can argue about that. But, you know, just the sort of catastrophe of American history. So what's the um, analogous, if we think about religion, both be becoming more pluralistic and then also becoming more of, you know, a precious uh, vehicle for, you know, a particular uh, spiritual realization, like the Benedictine option. What's analogous to that on the patriotism category? And I think that is something that people have been talking about now, particularly the Democrats, and that's a mandatory national service. And, you know, it's a time-honored thing for the king or the warlord or the government to snatch young people away and generally use them as cannon fodder. But now you get snatched away. It's mandatory, but um, it's some sort of national service. You get to choose whatever. I don't know how it works. There's different ideas about it, but there's no getting out of it. And I like that. I, I think that's uh, something that'll be a piece of how we move this thing forward. A, a new kind of patriotism in general that I, I think I just saw a good example of it, thinking on Morning Joe, where Joe Scarborough was talking with Eddie Gloud Jr. And he was talking about the excesses of the liberal thought police and uh, political correctness and so forth. And somehow where they were talking about a incident or somebody wrote something where they criticized Winston Churchill for being a colonialist and being a you know, sympathetic racist. And, you know, and Joe Scarborough's like, 
not Winston Churchill. It's like he's the savior of Western civilization. You're going to be tearing down the pillars of, you know, what holds this civilization together if you take him down. And Eddie Glau Jr. had a very good answer. He's a uh, the chair of the African-Americans department at, I think, Princeton. And he said, no, that's not the way to look at it. He corrected Joe and he said, what we're doing is we're adding this new information. And we could see that Winston Churchill did both of these things. And then we can all make our own decision about that. But we're not getting rid of one and replacing it with the other. And that's sort of the essence of integral. It's like we're literally adding more in a more spacious consciousness, one that opens itself up from the grips of ideologies. You know, it's one that becomes more radically friendly to reality as it is. And you you you, you stop holding reality responsible for failing to live up to your expectations. You know, it's like reality, if you don't align with my fantasy of what you should be, then I'm going to be really, really mad at you. So it doesn't get us anywhere. So we become an integral, essentially cosmocentric. We talk about when we go into pluralism, green consciousness, uh, postmodern consciousness, we become world-centric. We feel the interiors and exteriors of the world you know, the cultures, the karmas, as well as the shipping lanes. But then there's, you know, evolution keeps going. And then there's a cosmocentric view that adds to that, essentially the movements of history, you know, and this updraft of development that is knitted into reality and allows us to see that we're on a journey. Each of us individually, uh, our, each of our cultures, our people, our planet and the cosmos at large is going somewhere. All right. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got that all figured out. So until next time, this is Jeff Salzman. Thanks for listening to the daily evolver. Uh, you can always send me your questions and comments at Jeff at daily And all of my stuff is posted at daily So go there and check it out. And that's it for now. See you next time.